You should have an outline there in front of you. We're going to be looking at uh, Jude verse 4 tonight. Jude 4. Uh, last week we looked at uh, the, the purpose of why he wrote Jude, and we kind of concluded that there was two main things, to expose false teachers, first and foremost, <coughs> and then secondly, to encourage believers, as he says in verse 3, to contend for the faith, and then to finish, you know, to finish strong in their, their Christian walk. So tonight we're just going to be looking at one verse, and that's verse 4, and <coughs> Jude tells them there in verse 4, he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, or of our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, and so tonight we want to look at, move on from why he wrote this, but to the, the problem that required him to write this letter. Remember, he was going to write something else. He, 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 he really wanted to, um, <clears throat> verse 3, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he wanted it to be kind of a celebratory letter to these folks, these Christians who are not really <clears throat> addressed, but he, he wanted them to know that, hey, we have a common faith. But then he said, I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. And so this was a very pressing uh, situation for him. And the Lord led him, led him, the Holy Spirit led him to write these certain things. So look at the, the very first part of verse 4. It says, for certain people. It's interesting, he doesn't give any names. He doesn't say what these certain people did or what they didn't do. It's a very um, vague, you could say, description of who these people are. And I think what Jude is trying to point out to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's irrelevant who these people are. Their identity is not that important. That's not the main point. His main point is basically that anybody who is a spiritual pretender, someone who would come into a church and pose uh, to be something they're not, poses a clear and present danger to that church. Whatever their error is, is irrelevant. The point is they're not being authentic. They're not being real. They're not being genuine. And so he doesn't give their names. He doesn't, you know, today we have a lot of false teachers in Christianity. You can watch TV and see them all the time, you know, begging for your money and everything else. And a lot of heretics. And, you know, it's okay because we know who they are and what they teach and what their motivation is. You can call them out. But here Jude says he, he makes it vague for a purpose because if he did list the people individually who they were or whatever, um, then it would be kind of limited to that time frame, right? We could say, oh, that, that person doesn't exist. They're dead, so they're no longer a threat. And, and we're going to find out tonight that this threat has been around from the very beginning. It's not something new that, that Jude is addressing. Um, so I don't think that he found it necessary to detail all their errant teachings and, and you know, their, their false theology, all that stuff. They could have had some Gnosticism that they were propagating. Um, one commentator says it could have been an early version of Nicolaitanism, which is a heresy that takes the grace of God and promotes it into uh, immoral behavior. And we're going to talk about that a little later. 
Uh, but whatever the case, Jude says, you know what, that's not important. The point is, is these people crept into your church. And so whatever the case is, Jude's readers knew who the apostates were. He didn't have to name them. And what they taught. And so he warns them to be on, on guard. And we get a lot of warnings in the New Testament from our Lord and from others uh, about false teachers. Um, a lot of times today as contemporary Christians, we have to be on our guard against heretical teachings and things like that. Um, if you just quickly turn to Matthew chapter 7 and look at verse 15. Um, this is very clear. I mean, the, the Lord, this must have been important even back in Jesus' time for him to bring this up. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves who w- you will recognize them by their fruits. So they look like one thing, but they're really another. They existed in the time of Christ. And he's telling them they're going to come in. They're going to be there. Or even down at the end of Matthew, Matthew 24, chapter 24, verse 11, he says once again, and many false prophets will arise. And here's what the goal of the false prophet is. If you're wondering, what does a false prophet do? It says, and he, he will lead many astray. Um, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I mean, this was prevalent in the time of christ it was going to come it's jude is is kind of a evidence that it existed then and even today in the church it still exists or in in acts chapter 20 verse 29 um, paul says i know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things so this is how intimate this is he's saying even from your own church there's weird things that are going to start to come up and people are going to speak things that are just twisted to draw away what's their motivation to draw away the disciples after them therefore be on the alert this this isn't a um you know john was saying earlier in his position in security he's it's pretty much 24-7, 365. Not that he works that much, but it's, it's, it's a job that can't go away, right? I mean, because you always need security for buildings and people and all that kinds of stuff. And so, and it's the same thing here. This warning is not something that, oh, yeah, I guess they were back then, but they're not here today. No, they're here today. There's people all over the place that are trying to teach twisted things. And what's their purpose? What's their goal? To draw disciples after themselves. And so he says in Acts, be on the alert. And so when we look at Jude here, and he he starts off in verse 4, for certain people, and then he says, have crept in. Have crept in. Um, So you see here, first of all, their description of these people, and he kind of goes into detail about how they're coming into the fellowship. These are people that are actually in the church. These aren't people of the world that are outside the church. These are people who, he says, have crept in. And notice what it says, what? Unnoticed. Unnoticed. No one saw them creeping in. It's not like you saw some weird little man trying to slip under the door and (laughs) up through the pews and, you know. No, I mean, you would be alerted by that, right? They crept in unnoticed, it says. 
and they were, which gives the indication they were kind of accepted. Um, that word crept in on notice is basically in the original language, it's made up of three, three words, enter, into, and alongside. So they, they entered, they came into, and then they actually pulled their seat right up next to you. In other words, they were accepted, is what my point is. They were accepted in the church as believers. They came into the body of believers, and they entered into it, and they were even alongside, Jude is saying, they, they even were working alongside of us in ministry. That's how deceptive they were. Who knows? Some of these people may be sitting right next to you tonight. I hope not. But you never know, right? You don't know. You don't know. You've got to be on the alert. Everybody's looking around. Oh. <laughs> but that's really what Jude is saying to these people. He's talking to a church, and he's, he's telling them, hey, you know what? You need to be on the alert because there's people in your church that are doing this. <clears throat> And he's describing these people, even though maybe the people themselves may not even see it or understand it. Uh, but because of their, their lifestyle, because of what they're doing outside when they're away from the church, um, they may be doing exactly what was true of these people concerning what Jude wrote about. They came into the fellowship. They came alongside of them in ministry and work. And, and nobody would have thought anything was wrong with this at all. As a matter of fact, if you would have pointed something out, they, the rest of the church probably would have said, oh, how dare you, you know. But he notices their, their condemnation here next. Because <clears throat> he, he says these certain people have crept in unnoticed. And then it says this, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. I said that the book of the, the Jude here, when we started this, it, it's not necessarily an easy book. There's a lot of stuff in here. Um, I was talking to Kai the other day and we were talking about the schedule and preaching schedule and stuff and, and I said, yeah, hopefully I'll be done with Jude here before Christmas. And he goes, really? And then I'm like, no, 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 I mean First Thessalonians because <laughs> I'm thinking, just no way, you know, we just don't have enough time to get, to get through the whole, the whole part probably by Christmas. But, but it, it's, it's, it's a very in-depth book. There's a lot of, of meat in here. But it says here, who was... Long ago, these, were, these people were designated for this condemnation. And, and this is in what they call the perfect tense. And, and it suggests that long ago, God pronounced damnation against all these false teachers, against all these apostates, you might say. And the Old Testament kind of seems to indicate that because you can go through the Old Testament and find predictions from the Old Testament prophets. We're not going to do it tonight because we don't have time but if you look into Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Zephaniah, there, there's predictions in there about what's going to happen when these false prophets arrive. And it basically predicts that God will judge them. The, the, the judgment of God will fall. Uh, one place that we will turn to is turn over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, a couple books to the left there of Jude. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. And... I want to read verses 3 to 6 for us. Because he talks here about the same, the same situation. 
Remember, we said Jude and, and Second Peter are, are written in very similar um, kind of textually. They, they, have a, they bring up a lot of the same stuff. Chapter 2 is all about the, the prophets and the false the false prophets and the teachers. And so in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, here's what Peter has to say. He says, And in their greed, speaking of these false teachers and false prophets, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, speaking of Noah, but preserved Noah, a herald, or the, speaking of the flood, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice that word ungodly because we're going to run into that in our text as well. Verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So now go back to Jude, because in verse 4, it says that these people, certain people, they've crept in unnoticed, and these people were long ago designated for this condemnation. And so the question is, what's he talking about? What condemnation is he talking about? Is this talking about the judgment of God? Is that what he's talking about? No, he's not. Not in this context. When he said, who long ago were designated for this, this condemnation, what? The condemnation that Jude is, Jude is giving out right here in the book. That they're not of us, no matter what they say. Don't believe what they're saying, because their lifestyle proves that they don't belong here. Um, so it's the words of Jude that is condemning them. Even though the believers in, in this church, in this fellowship, have already accepted them. Jude is saying, be careful. Be careful, church, because they're right in your midst. Uh, and he says that long ago they were designated and I think long ago, it seems the text, if you follow the text down all the way to verse 14, he's still talking in verse 14 about these people. In verse 14, he says, it was also about these, what? These people that he's talking about. He's been talking about them for several verses prior to this. What? That Enoch. It goes all the way back to Enoch. He says it was also, verse 14, about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the seventh generation there from Adam, basically, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he kind of indicates how you may notice them. Even though they snuck in and they seem to be part of you, you may notice these certain qualities in their life. It says they are grumblers, they're malcontents, they're following their own sinful desires, they're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
I mean, you read that list and you go, man, these people would stand out in any church. Not necessarily. <laughs> Not necessarily. And so Enoch spoke about this. And Enoch, according to the Bible, he preached about these people who, back in Genesis, who Jude is describing here. That's why I said it's been going on for years, this kind of behavior. Enoch was seventh from Adam, and he had, you remember in, in Genesis, it tells us that he gave birth to a son. And what was his son's name? Methuselah, remember? 969, he's the longest, oldest man in the Bible. Um, and what's interesting about that name, Methuselah, that Enoch, being inspired by God, named his son Methuselah. Methuselah in Hebrew means this, when he dies, it shall come. That's literally what his name means. When he dies, it shall come. Well, you ask the question, well, what shall come? The very judgment that Enoch is telling the people that he lived with, that he predicted would come upon this generation whose lifestyle continued to violate what God's word really taught. Um, it's very interesting when you look at it this way because when you go through, and, and people a lot smarter than I have, have done this, okay, they've actually counted literally the number of years that are in like Genesis, chap Genesis chapter 5, what's represented there, and you'll discover that Methuselah died in the same year, the same year that the flood came. Genesis 6, 7, and 8. So God fulfilled this prophecy. He, he kind of gave insight to Enoch, and Enoch said, okay, I'm going to have a son. I'm going to name him Methuselah. And he's been telling these people, look, judgment's coming. You can't continue to live this way. Now, if you, if you think, well, what was going on back then? Okay, turn over to Genesis all the way to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 6, because <clears throat> it tells us, Genesis chapter 6. It says, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. This is very early in, in the earth. I mean, in the time of the earth, you know. A lot of people say, how old do you think the earth is, you know? I'm a young earth person, so I think it's under 10,000 years old. A lot of people, ah, how can you believe that? Because I, I believe science supports that. Because I don't buy the whole evolutionary lie and all that stuff. But anyway, this is very early in that time frame. And the Lord looked down and he saw all the wickedness of man. He said it was great in the earth. And, and look at what it says. It describes it this way. Every intention, every intention, not some, not most, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you think our society is bad, and it is. There's still some good people out there. You know, not everybody has, fits this bill. Not everybody is, every intention of the, the thoughts of their hearts is evil continually. I don't think I've ever met a person in my lifetime that I could say that's true of. In verse 6, it says the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Verse 7, so the Lord said, you know what, I'm going to blot out, blot out man whom I've created from the face of the earth. In other words, I'm done. 
I'll blot them out from the face of the land. I'm going to blot out man, the animals, the creeping things, all the birds of the heaven, everything. I'm sorry that I made them. People point this out. Is, this, is, is God changing his mind? No, he's not changing his mind. He can't. He can't change his mind. God knows the beginning from the end. God, God doesn't operate on a, on a time continuum like we do. He, he is over time. There's no yesterday. There's no tomorrow. It all, it's all there. But it says, but God, verse 8, love this verse, right? Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Excuse me. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so what did, what's this have to, what Enoch basically predicted to this generation when he was living with them, he basically told them, look, if you continue with your sinful practices, your sinful patterns of living, God is going to bring judgment. That's going to happen. And then God supported that by giving him divine prophecy and revelation from God himself, probably, telling him the exact year his, he, when he names his boy in the year he dies, that's when God's judgment is going to, going to come. This is all inspired by the Lord. And so go back to Jude, because it says in, in Jude, verse 14, that it refers to this guy, Enoch. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. All right? And so in verse 4, it tells us these, these were designated for this condemnation. Um, one of the points here that I want you to see, and I think it's practical for all of us to understand this, is that you cannot get away with practicing a sinful lifestyle before God. God sees everything. God sees everything. Uh, if, you're, if your lifestyle is not being lived in obedience to the word of God as one of his children, this verse seems to indicate, you know, you're marked out, even if you're a believer, for his discipline. If you're not a believer, you're marked out for his judgment. You're already designated. You're already marked out. In other words, God's not going to look at it and go, oh, well, I know Jesus died for my sins, so I'm not going to worry about how you live. It's just, it's all, you know, water under the bridge. Don't worry about it. Jesus has got your back. <laughs> no, you can't get away with it. It's not going to work that way. God will not excuse an unrepentant heart. And that's the key here. Okay, these are individuals who are living a lifestyle of sin. They were in the church. They were working in the church. They're alongside of people in the church. But you know what? They had a, they had a whole other life. And they were doing things that were not becoming a Christian outside the church, clearly. And these were people that were actually in, in there. These aren't people outside the church. They, 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 they helped. They, they offered their assistance, their service, whatever. But their lifestyle, when you, when you really got to see what they were really like, their lifestyle, they were really deserving God's judgment because of the way they were living. And that's what the condemnation here that Jude is giving these individuals he's warning them he's saying look you know you need to root these people out you can't allow this to continue and something that had long existed even before the days of enoch 
when he warned his generation. It's very simple. You cannot continue to violate God's word. You can't violate the revelation of God. You can't continue in sin and, and just say, uh, you know, okay, what's all covered by God's grace? It's not going to work. God's not going to put up with that. Just like he didn't put up with it back in Enoch. What did he do? Sure enough, Enoch was right. The judgment's coming. Oh, my son died. Guess what? The judgment's here, folks. Button up the ark. That's it. God brought this universal flood to judge that generation because of their sin. And some may read that and go, well, you know, that's, that's not the way God works today. We live in the church age and it's filled with God's grace. The same principle being applied here in Jude applies to us today. Because the same situation is relevant. You can't continue in sin and expect not to forgo some kind of judgment or discipline from the hand of God. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to it. You know, nothing to see here. No, that's not what God does. And so in this series, we, you know, we want us to see clearly that there's a warning from Jude to this church, to these people, these Christians that he's writing to. And he's saying, please don't continue in a lifestyle that's contradicting God's word. Because it's not going to work out good for you. That's, that's the, very, it's, it's, it's the very opposite, really, of what he just told us to do in verse 3. Right? He's telling the Christians, what's he say? Make sure you're contending earnestly for the faith. And then the next verse, he's warning them about people who are even amongst them who are living in a way that is, is not contending for the faith. They're basically destroying the faith. It's contradicting what he just told them to do. And you say, well, you know, you're a Christian and, and you believe the Bible and you believe in Jesus and all that, that's great. Uh, according to the Bible, that means that your lifestyle should demonstrate that. Your lifestyle should, should be in obedience to God's word. That's what Jude is trying to get them to say, to see. And so he points out there very clearly their, their condemnation and what what that's referring to. And then he moves on in verse 4, and he talks about their character. So he's kind of pointing out here that, you know what? Uh, these people that are coming in, I'll tell you how they're coming in. I'll tell you about their condemnation. Now we're stuck on their character. And he points it out in verse 4. He says, long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Well, who are these people, Jude? Ungodly people. Ungodly people. Asebes in the, in the original language, A-S-E-B-E-S, is the transliteration of the Greek word there. Now remember, we're in the midst of a church. We're in the midst of a, a, a bunch of Christians here. And you would say, well, couldn't you recognize these people? This word used for ungodly here refers to false teachers who could not worship God properly. In fact, they were and they are devoid of any and all reverence for him. 
That's why sometimes when people come up and they'll say, well, you know, you mentioned this, pa- this pastor or this preacher, and, and he's clearly, you know, I don't agree with everything he says, and, you know, but I think he's got some good things. You know, no. No. They're, they're, they're false people. They're ungodly people if they're not teaching according to what the Scripture says, especially when they're lining their pockets and they're fleecing the flock and they're, they're buying another Learjet or another multi-million dollar mansion. And it's, it's crazy. And people just continue to throw money at them. I, I cannot comprehend that. They don't have any respect. They don't have any reverence for God. They're all about themselves. And so the early church fathers used this term that we translate ungodly here. They used this this term in reference to atheists and heretics. And they didn't use that lightly. It was a very serious term. And it's interesting that he chose this word ungodly because it, it basically means that they were not responding to the authority of God in their lives. They were ungodly. They were lacking in obedience to God. Anyone who, who lacks in obedience to God is ungodly. It's, it's just the way, the way it works. No matter whether you would describe him that way or not, that's how God describes him. And see, many of these Christians said that, hey, wait, wait a minute, you can't call them ungodly. They're people in our church. Oh, we know Joe, we know Henry, we know, yeah. How, how dare you? You know, that's, that's kind of what the pushback was uh, against what Jude was trying to tell these people. And many of these Christians said that, hey, these are people here in our own, I mean, how can you say this of them? Isn't that wrong? But in their lifestyle, basically, it's dis, they're living in disobedience to God. They are, are described as being ungodly people. And one last thing. This, this problem, which required such a letter from Jude. Remember, this isn't what he intended to write. He had to kind of manufacture this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was going to write about the common faith, but then the Holy Spirit said, no, there's something else I got you to include here, Jude. And so he went on this whole thing about false teachers. But this Jude is one of the most unusual letters, really, in the New Testament. Um, it's not only seen in the description of certain persons who crept into these believers, but also he, he goes into the, the doctrine. So he's not just going to describe the people themselves, but he's going to talk about the doctrines that they promoted. And, and look at what it says there in verse 4, because after he calls them ungodly people, he, he says there, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, or some, some translations may say licentiousness, into sensuality or licentiousness. Uh, according to verse 4, there's two phases of this doctrine that they are promoting in their lifestyle, just by how they're living. Two things are clear. And you know what? If it's true here tonight in your own life, I would warn you by the authority of the Word of God that you're headed for disaster. You better repent. You better change your behavior. And these two things are pointed out as, as terrible things in the mind of God. And they deserve his judgment. And you say, well, what are these two things uh, that formulate this doctrine which 
these so-called believers are promoting? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a development of an attitude and practice of compromising with sin. We see this very much in churches today. There's an attitude and practice of compromising with sin. In other words, well, you know, they're just immature in their faith. It's okay if they... They're not doing everything right. And, and there's this compromising attitude. Um, and that turns into people begin to act like they can do anything and get away with it because it doesn't make any difference. I remember when uh, Jack Hayford's church took over the worship ministry at the fallen Robert Schuler's church, the Crystal Cathedral. And Jack Hayford sent a ministry team over there, a worship team, to take over, and they had a big 600-member choir and just big pipe organ, a very high church kind of a thing. And within the first two weeks, the worship team, who kind of came to this church to help them, realized, you know what? Probably three-quarters of this choir is filled with homosexuals. Well, they sing like angels but they're practicing a lifestyle that they shouldn't be. And so this team, the worship leader, basically said, you know what? We, we need to generate this little thing here. You need to sign this for us if you're going to sing in our choir. And within two weeks, I mean, the choir went down to like 50 people. And there was a rebellion in the church. How dare you? This, this happens all the time. This compromising with sin to get people into the door thinking that somehow, well, you know, we live in an age of grace, so who are we to judge, and, you know, all these things. And what it ends up doing, he tells us here, it ends up perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. I mean, think about the, the grace of our God. Just think about it for a second. I mean, thank God for his grace, amen? I love the grace of God. I mean, we, we'd be lost if it wasn't for the grace of God. Um, God's grace made it possible for us to be accepted before God as perfect, as righteous, as holy. We didn't earn that. That's God's grace. God's grace is given to us as something we don't deserve. None of us deserve God's grace. We deserve his judgment. The Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So God's grace is given to us even though we don't deserve it. And, and a result of God's grace is what do we have? We have eternal life, everlasting life with God forever. We have complete forgiveness for all of our sin. I mean, praise God for that, right? I mean, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, okay, you know what? I'm going to forgive you for all the sins up until the time you choose to follow me. And once you come to me, all those old sins are forgiven. But from now on, pal, you better walk the high road because one little sin and you're back in hell. I mean, thank God he didn't do that. We'd never make it. No, it's our sins, past, present, future. They're all under the blood of Christ completely. I praise God for his grace where my, even in our own lives, where, where our sin abounds, right? At times, guess what? The word says his grace abounds even more. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank God for his grace, his unmerited favor, but at the same time, I think Jude is saying, you know what, be warned, be careful, because it's easy to, to turn what you know about, in truth, about God's grace 
and about his complete forgiveness and about how much he's done for you, it's very easy to turn that into what the Bible calls licentiousness or sensuality. You say, well, how, how does that happen? This word, sensuality, here in ESV, licentiousness in other, other translations, in the original language, it's, it's basically two words put together. It's made up of two words. One word, selge, S-E-L-G-E, that's part of the word. That's a transliteration of the original language, but selge is how you pronounce it, um, is a city. It's, it's, a, it's a name of a city, and let me tell you a little bit about that city. It was known, it, it was over in uh, Poseidon Antioch, in the region of Antioch, and it was known as a stoic city, a stoic city. I don't know if you remember, on the, Paul's first missionary journey, he went to Antioch, he went to Iconium, he went to Lystra, and he went to Derby. Remember that? Well, one of the cities in the region of Antioch was called Selge. Um, Selge was a city that was a Stoic city. I don't know if you've heard of the ancient philosophers, the, you know, we've all, the Stoics. Well, what were the Stoics known for? The Stoics were known for very high and very strict morals. They had very high standards of morality, higher than anyone around them. And this, this, this city... <laughs> was basically a Stoic city. And, and to give you an idea, if you lived back then, if you were a Roman soldier back in this time where the city was, you know, you were always praying, man, I don't want to get stuck in Selge because there's nothing to do there. There's a curfew at 7 p.m. There's no houses of prostitution. There's, there's nothing. There's no drinking. It's a very high moral place. And that was the worst place that a Roman soldier could be sent to for any amount of time because, you know, that's not what soldiers enjoy. <laughs> I mean, they'd want to go to Ephesus or somewhere other than Selge. They didn't want to go there. Well, in our text, remember I said it's made up of two words, Selge, which is this very high moral city with a very high morals. The other word is just a, a, a small little reflex in front of Selge, A. A. A Selge. A Selge. That's what the word is made of. What does A mean in the original? No. So, so what's this word saying? No morality. Anything goes. It's the opposite of, of what the Stoics stood for because it has the A in front of it. And that means no, no morality at all. So the city represents a strict standard of morality, and that little alpha prefix in, in front of the word means no standards of morality whatsoever. Now watch this carefully. Excuse me? Yes, yes. That's the transliteration of the Greek. So if, if, if you're a Christian, okay, and you believe in the grace of God, praise the Lord, right? I mean, let's celebrate that. Uh, if you believe in the forgiveness of the Lord, praise the Lord. If you believe that no sin could ever 
that you ever would commit could possibly violate the security that you have under the grace of Christ, praise the Lord, right? That's, those are things that are, we're excited about. But, but what Jude wants them to see is God warns you about turning what you know about the grace of God into no standards of morality at all. In other words, all my sins are paid for. Let's go party. I can do whatever I want. No. That's, that's what was going on. Okay. Um, in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, Paul says. Well, I thought we weren't under the law. Well, we're not. We're under the grace of God. But the righteous requirement of the law can be still fulfilled in us. And he finishes the sentence there in verse 4. He says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to what? The Spirit. Okay, so after we're saved, God gives us the Holy Spirit that lives the Christian life through us. And guess what? I mean, we aren't saved by the law, clearly. We don't go by the law, necessarily. At least the way they did in the Old Testament. But you know what? If you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, the result is that what the law demands and says will be reflected in your life. You know, if, you, if you're a born-again Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you, you know, think about it. Do you think you'll be lying? Do you think you'll be committing adultery? Do you think you'll be stealing? Do you think you'll be blaspheming God? Using God's name in vain? I don't think you'll be doing those things. Right? You'll be fulfilling the law. Not for your salvation, but as a result of it. And so it's very, uh, we have to understand this because even though we're not saved by the law, Romans says in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Remember, Christ didn't come to do away with the law. He came to what? Fulfill the law, right? And so as Christians, we are also fulfilling the law in the way we live. If we continue to say, hey, you know what? I'm saved. It doesn't matter what I do. Well, guess what? Then you're guilty of what Jude is condemning these people for in verse 4. He's saying, don't, don't, don't take the grace of God and, and trot it under your feet thinking, oh, well, you know, because you're turning the grace of God into what they call here no morals at all, sensuality. You're saying you're free to do whatever you want. You can go and do whatever you want. You can think whatever you want with no consequences at all. But God's word says that you know what? You're going to face discipline. You're not going to get away with that kind of behavior. I mean, the Bible itself teaches that if we judge ourselves, what? We're not going to be judged. It says that. And so it's important that we face this personally. We look at our own life. Are there areas of my life that I need to repent of? Are there areas of my life that I'm just doing my own thing? Because he wants us to understand that this development of an attitude of, of, of practicing and compromising with sin is very prevalent. And it's very easy to, to turn God's grace into an attitude that says, now I can do whatever I want. Well, not only that, but secondly, and this is what we'll close with here, the denial of the sovereignty and person of Jesus Christ. This is what he says at the end of verse 4. He says these ungodly people, they, they, they pervert, they, they uh, pollute basically the grace of God and they, they change it into sensuality. And then it says this, 
And secondly, they deny our only master and Lord, comma, Jesus Christ. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe these people were in this group of Christians, this church, whatever Jude, whoever Jude is addressing here. They weren't in the, uh, the assembly of believers, and they're, they're standing up saying, I deny Christ as God. No, they're not doing that, right? Because I, mean, I think we'd notice that, right? Because they crept in unnoticed, remember. So they're not, he's not talking about openly denying Christ, among Christians, I mean, if, if one of you stood up and said that tonight, I'd say, well, there's the door, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, that's, not, that's not words that would come out of, a, of, a, of, a, of someone who's honestly a believer denying the deity of Christ. He's not saying that. Uh, it's not saying that these deceivers were creeping in among them and then saying publicly to other Christians, you know what, I, you know, I know we're here to worship Christ, but I really hate Jesus. And I don't go along with anything here. It wasn't saying that at all. They already <laughs> deceived the believers that they were amongst because the believers welcomed them. They thought, hey, oh yeah, add one more to the, the, the group here. And thinking they were one with them. And Jude's saying, no, they're not. Be careful. Well, what does it mean when he says, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ? One thing you have to know is that this is the only place in the Bible, the only place where this particular phrase, our only master and Lord, comma, Jesus Christ, is. It's the only place. And the emphasis here is on the two words, master and Lord. Now, if you study any of the New Testament, you know master. You see it in the, the Gospels a lot of times. Um, the word sometimes is translated teacher, all right, when they're referring to Jesus. Didaskalos, that's what the original Greek word is there. That's not the word he's using here in Jude. So he's not just saying, oh, these, these are just another teacher, another master. No, the word here that he's using is despotis, which means despot. What's a despot? A despot is a sovereign ruler. <laughs> in other words, you have no right to question him. Um, and you're, you have to live your life in absolute obedience to this individual. One wrong move and it's off with your head. That's what a despot is. A very sovereign leader. Well, these people who continue as a pattern of life is, is really denying this despot. <laughs> They're, they're, they're denying the authority of this despot. They continue to deny the despot, the despotism, you could say, of the Lord Jesus Christ in their own life because they're doing their own thing. Because they think, hey, what's it matter? I'm covered by the grace of God. They're missing the point that he is sovereign over everything. Everything. See, we think as Christians, sometimes there's little areas of our life that, well, you know, we, can, we don't have to submit that to, do we? Yeah, we do. Um, there's a little book called, I think it's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's used sometimes for evangelism and things like that, but it describes, the writer kind of described it as your, your heart is like, your, light, your, 
you're like a house and your heart has different rooms in it and you know he takes you through the whole you know living room whatever and then in the story it's kind of like the lord says well can i go into that room <laughs> it's like this little closet you know just this little hamper closet in the in the hallway oh no 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 you can't go in there lord <laughs> you know that's off guard i mean i probably got some stuff in there i don't want you to see you know well you know either he's gonna abide in your life or he's not he's not gonna p- put up with well you can't leave me and you know you, you can go everywhere jesus but there no he's not gonna put up with that he's sovereign over everything and and when whether it's a sinful practice or whether it's an attitude or whatever it might be you have to realize you have to submit that to him. And then the second word here is Lord, Master and Lord, Curios. Sometimes it's translated Sir, sometimes it's translated Owner. Uh, It's it's used as a title of deference and and honor. They, they really deny Christ, his rightful position, in a multitude of ways. First of all, as God, as king, and even as Messiah. They deny his rightful position. This isn't a position that Jesus has to apply for. It's not a position he has to work his way up to. He already has this position. But they're saying, no, I don't acknowledge God. I don't acknowledge Christ as God. I don't acknowledge Christ as king. And I don't acknowledge Christ as Messiah. And what do they do? They're, they're confirming that they are counterfeit when they get to this point. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, right? They're in there with the Christians mixing it up, doing all the ministry stuff, but they deny him by their works. Titus says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why? Because the Lord is Lord over all, or he's not Lord at all. And this means that he owns everything. I mean, there's areas of our life, probably all of us have these areas where we think, well, I'm still, I still own this. <laughs> no, no, you don't. He owns everything. And every time we say, no, this is mine, we're violating his lordship in our lives. I don't want to give this to you, Lord. We're holding on to it with white knuckles, whatever it might be. We've denied the despot. We've denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different passages that talk about this in the New Testament. We don't have time to go into all of them tonight, but the, the, the thing I want you to see is the problem is not outside the church. This is not a problem that exists outside the church. This is a problem that exists inside the church. This is a problem that exists among believers. And it's, it's very easy for us personally to promote by our own lifestyle, by our own doctrine even at times. Um, and and it, it means that we turn God's grace into no standards of morality whatsoever. And we have to be careful of that. We have to be very careful of that. We can't think we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and there's no strings attached. You know, God's grace is free and unmerited favor, and that's all there is to it. Um, because when you start violating the sovereignty of God in our possessions, in the way we use our money, the way we use our time, the way we use our talents, when we start violating 
in, in the sovereignty of God and, and begin to think that this stuff is actually ours. I worked hard for this. This is mine. No, it's not. God gave you the energy to get that job. God gave you the ability to do what you did for your life so that you could retire and do whatever. That's fine. Okay, but you have to give him the credit for it. And sometimes by our own lifestyle, we're de- denying the sovereignty of God. And it's interesting that he ends here with this kind of a, a thought about denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ because remember how he started. This was something that was very dear to Jude's heart because how did he start this book? Did he start this book? Jude, half-brother of Jesus. I got the connection. No. What what, what did he say? Jude, what? A servant of Christ Jesus. So it comes full circle for him. So this is something that was very near and dear to his heart and it's just something that we need to be aware of okay and we have to be um uh, just heed that heed that warning because it's not what you see is not always what you get and that's why as a church sometimes you know when people want to join our church or or do something whatever we're very patient with the process i explained to the the people that went through the membership class on on sunday basically what happens you go through a class and we tell you all about the church or whatever and are you a member then no then we give you some information you fill it out you give it back to us have some questions on it want to hear your testimony um you've been baptized things like that and then you know even after that you know if you want to continue to join our church then we'll say okay you know what here you know mary frank and and henry want to join our church and we just kind of put your names in the bulletin for two weeks just to let everybody know so everybody knows yeah these people are joining the church okay i don't think i i had one time and it wasn't at this church it was at another church one time where and i wasn't an elder or anything at that i was just a youth pastor one time where when we published somebody's name um it actually happened after they became a member, <laughs> but because uh, they didn't come forward fast enough. But this person was like a, um, a closet, closet alcoholic, an adulterer, and several things were going on in his life. And the, the person that brought this to our attention after the person joined the church, <laughs> um, he did it kind of a week too late. I guess he was out of town or something. And uh, when he came back, and he said, oh, you didn't vote them into membership yet? Why? You know, and everybody was like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was true. And when confronted with it, the man did repent and stuff, so we had to deal with it that way. But that's why we do that, because we have to be careful. You know, we can't just open up the floodgates and say, yeah, who come out, come whoever you want, you know. Uh, you know, it's appalling to me sometimes, even in youth ministry and in children's ministry, and I'm not going to mention the church, but there's an example here um, on the peninsula where a church allowed one of their children's workers to work in their children's ministry, knowing that they had feelings for children. I'll just say that. Sick. I mean, I, I can't imagine that going on. But it happens. It happens all the time. And so we have to be aware of that and we have to be careful. <sighs> we'll get through this book sooner. <laughs> next week, next verse. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, we do thank you for the warning. We thank you, Lord, that you have protected our church. And Father, I know that um, you know the people that we have here are focused on your word. They're, they're desiring to live lives that are honoring to you. We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We don't <laughs> have to be perfect in our own ability, but we do have to be perfect to go to heaven. And there's only one way to achieve that, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us perfect. He, he, he covers us with his blood. He forgives us of our sin, past, present, future. And he secures our, our place in heaven. But Lord, in the meantime, we can't just coast and do whatever we want. We, we have, we're called to serve him. And so Lord, I just pray that you would motivate us to examine our own, our own lives, our own walks. And Lord, if there are areas, I'm sure there are in every one of our lives that we need to address with you. I pray that we would have hearts of repentance, that we would come to you and confess that and, and move on. Lord, we don't have to beat ourselves up over it, but Lord, at the same time, the behavior that is not honoring to you has to stop. And Father, you know what, what that is in all of our lives. And so Lord, we just thank you for your grace and the way you deal with this in our own lives, in our own church. And Lord, we do pray for those who couldn't make it out tonight. We pray that you would just keep them safe and, and help them if they're sick or or if they're traveling. And, and Father, pray that you'd bless the, the remainder of our evening together and bless our conversation here. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.